Hey, good morning, y'all again. My name's Ed Griffin-Hagen, and I am one of the pastors on our staff here at my church, and I'm, I'm really am stoked today to be starting a new series, <clears throat> and that series is What Every Christian Ought to Know. That's the name of the series, and the name of the series is not Everything a Christian Ought to Know, because there's a whole lot more to it than we're going to go over in the next 12 weeks, but what we are, what we are going to discuss are some very fundamental truths of the faith that every Christian, all of us, really ought to know. They're not just simply facts. Because in reality, facts are like a recipe, but truths are like a meal. You take in some facts, and you may get some head knowledge, and you may get smarter, but you take in truths, and the truth claims that the Scripture makes and you digest all that and it'll change your life it's not just going to make you smarter there's about 12 or 13 inches between my brain and my heart the truths are going to change both my brain and my heart in first peter chapter 3 verse 15 every believer is encouraged to do this what peter tells us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for to give a reason for the hope that you have And you ought to be able, all of us, ought to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. And this series that we're going to be walking through over the next 12 weeks or so is designed just to do that. To help us give a defense for the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And it's also designed to do two things. Two things to maybe two different sort of sets of people. Number one, if you are not a Christian... I want you to be clear on and to know what we are asking you to believe. You need to know what it is that makes a Christian a Christian from a belief perspective. And number two, if you are a Christian, I want you on the other side of this series to be able to confidently say, I know what I believe and I know why I believe what I believe. And so today we begin this series with the Scriptures. Every Christian ought to know that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, why? Why do you get so wound up about the Bible? Well, well, here's why. If, If this book really is the Word of God, and what we're saying when we say that is that that book is inspired, and I'm going to get back to what inspiration means, what being inspired means in a minute. But, but, but if it is the Word of God, then here's why you need to know that. There's three, three things. Number one, your salvation depends on your understanding of the gospel message that's contained in that Bible. The gospel message from page one to the end of the book, and, and you need to understand, or you and I need to understand what that means. Number two, the assurance of your salvation rests in the truths in the Scripture. And number three, your spiritual growth depends on living by the principles that are contained in the Scriptures. I want us to look first this morning at Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says, the writer of Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, He has spoken to us by His Son. And this is talking about revelation. The writer of Hebrews is, in effect, he's saying that God spoke 
sort of on two broad kind of occasions. He spoke once long ago, and he, and he speaks in these last days, the writer says, by his son. Clearly he has in mind here the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation. And you've got to understand this. The Old Testament is not a collection of the wisdom of a bunch of old Jewish men. It is the Word of God. It is not the collection of the best religious thought of the day. It is the Word of God. It's not a collection of the good words of godly people. It's the Word of God. The, the writer of Hebrews says God spoke. So the Old Testament was God speaking to the fathers by way of the prophets. And, and he says in these last days, he's spoken again and this time he's spoken through his son, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels record God speaking through his son. The book of Acts is God speaking through the proclamation of the message of his son. And the epistles, Paul's writing, James' writing, Peter's writing, most of all of those, the letters, they record God speaking through the deep understanding of the meaning of the life and the ministry of the Son. So the Old Testament is God speaking and revealing Himself. The New Testament is God speaking and revealing His Son. The Old Testament is God's self-revelation. And that is the theme of the Old Testament. The main character is God. It reveals who He is. It reveals His character. It reveals... Uh, his attributes. It's not the story of man. It's not the story of Israel. It's not an exhaustive history of every event that happened on the, in the world. It's not a science book. It's not a history book. It's not a geography book. It's not a math book. It's none of those things, but it contains all of those things. Y'all, it it's a God book. It is about God. God is the star of the screenplay. The New Testament is God revealed by His Son in the life of His Son, in the, in the message of His Son, in the understanding of the work of His Son, and in the culmination of the coming of His Son to establish an eternal kingdom. In both cases, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God spoke. We have the Word of God. We don't have the Word of man. We have the Word of God, this, this, this passage in Hebrews, it talks about revelation, and it's the revelation of God. And it begs the question, y'all, how? Like, like, what was the process? How did that happen? And there's a few things I want to walk through. The first thing is this. Inspiration is not about the man. It's not about the man. It's about the Word. It's not about Peter. It's about the Word. It's not about James. It's about the Word. It's not about Paul. It's about the Word. So let's look at what Peter did write in Second Peter in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Here's what he wrote. He said, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, no writings, none of the writings in Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had, never means never, never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What, is that, what does that mean? It means that God's Word did not come from some guy's mind and some guy's interpretation. 
the guy's not inspired. The word is inspired. Peter is, is what he's talking about is the source um, or the origin of the word. It's not the product of man. It's not the product of the will of man or the desire of man. But it is men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. They spoke for God. And it's like the, the same word is the word, this word carried along in verse 21. It's like the, it's the same word that, that, that uh, when they wrote of a ship, the wind blowing into the sails and moving a ship along. It's that same sort of word. And so this idea of being carried along in verse 21, it tells us that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak from God. The Holy Spirit filled them and they were moved along the road. The content of the Bible is the revelation. The, 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 the process by which we get that content and the way that content is written down, that's called inspiration. And of course, men were in the process, but the message did not originate with the man. It didn't come from their will. It didn't come from their desire. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak from God. God used them. And yeah, he used their personality. When you read Paul, you can read Paul in those writings. When you read James, you can read James in those writings. So yeah, their personality, and, and yeah, their background, and some of their insights, and their experiences, and, and their perceptions. But every word was the word of, word of God. And that is, that's the miracle of inspiration. So when you, when you pick this up, you're not reading the Word of men. You are reading the Word of God that was written by men who were moved along by the Spirit of God and not apart from their personalities or their heart or their experiences or, or their passion or their vocabulary. Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, verse 9, he wrote this, he said, Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. This was the promise of the writers of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out of the very mouth of the Lord. It came and comes from inside of a holy God. We recognize that. The early church recognized the Word of God. Even though it wasn't until the late 300s, the Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage, sort of comprehensively put a stamp on the books that were established in the canon of Scripture. That's a, a, probably a new term. The canon of Scripture is the, is the collection of the books that ultimately became this Bible put together. It's called the canon. But it didn't take people that long to recognize the Word. The church did not invent. Don't let the Discovery Channel or the, the Learning Channel tell you about the way the Bible came to be because it didn't come to be the way they, they say it did. God's sheep hear God's voice. And the church no more invented the canon of Scripture than Newton invented gravity. God invented gravity and Newton discovered gra gravity. The church from the very earliest discovered the documents that were inspired. 
God wrote them and the church discovered them. And yet there was some time before some official church put some official label on all of it. Y'all, it was clear to the early church what was the Word of God and what wasn't the Word of God. You hear these haters, what about the lost gospel of Judas? What about the lost gospel of Peter? Here's the deal. If God intended for the lost gospel of Judas to be in your Bible, it'd be in your Bible. The Learning Channel would tell you that a bunch of men voted on it and they threw it out. That's just not the way it happened. The early church was using the books and it didn't look like this. It looked like a scroll. And the early church was using the texts and the, and the documents that God wrote by carrying along the men that actually penned it. And here's the deal. Some folks are going to say, they said it then too, and they're saying it today, that they can buy that the Bible is inspired, but only in the sacred things, but not in, in the secular things like science and history and geography and all that. And they'll, they'll say the history of the Bible errors. The geography in the Bible has got errors. The math in the Bible, it's errors. The science, oh my God, the science in the Bible is full of errors. And that's like saying that, that, that God is pretty good at the religious things, but in everything else he needs your help. Let, he don't need your help. He don't need my help with nothing, with nothing. Let me give you a few examples. Number one is, is when, when the Bible speaks to science, it's accurate. So it is scientifically accurate. It's not a science book. Don't put that on it. But when it speaks to science, it's accurate. One scientific, I want to walk through three or four. One fundamental of science probably is that we all know in 2018 that the earth is suspended in space. It's obvious the earth is suspended in space. Well, the ancient Egyptians believed that the earth was supported by pillars. The Greeks, that it was riding on the back of some giant named Atlas, and the Hindus believed that the earth was on the backs of gigantic elephants. But the book of Job, which is perhaps the oldest piece of literature ever found in chapter 26, verse 7, says this, God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. It's not a science book, but it just spoke a little bit to science. We take for granted that the earth is round. As late as 1492, 1,500 years after Christ, people didn't know that the earth was round. But Isaiah, 750 years before Christ, 2,000, more than 2,000 years from 1492, Isaiah said in chapter 40, it's God who sits above the circle of the earth. The word for circle in the Hebrew is chog. Chog is the word, and it means sphere or a globe. How did Job know that God hung the earth on nothing? How did Isaiah know 750 years before Christ that the earth is round? Remember what 2 Peter verse 21 of of chapter 1 said. They spoke from God. God don't make mistakes. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's another scientific fact sort of relating to the science in the Bible. The stars in our galaxy are beyond our ability to number. You and I would never be so foolish as to walk outside and try to count the stars. But there was a dude named Hipparchus 150 years before Christ who was the 
scientist of the day, Hipparchus. He said, I'm going to count the stars. He went out and he counted them, and he counted 1,022 stars. And his findings were considered the fact of the day. And to, for 250 years, his findings, they all said, there's 1,022 stars. It's a fact. How many times have you heard people say, evolution, it's a fact. It's a fact. It's a fact until it changes. So 250 years later, along comes Ptolemy. Ptolemy said, I'm going to count the stars. And he said, that old Hipparchus was 34 stars off. There's not 1,022. There's 1,056. And so he was wrong. So that changed the science. For 1,300 years, that changed the science until along comes Galileo, who invented the first crude telescope, and he turns it up to the heavens, and he can see beyond what, uh, what our naked eye can see, and he sees hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of stars when all of them, all they had to do was turn to Jeremiah 33:22, that says, I, God, will make the descendants of David as countless as the stars in the sky. And that's not a scientific verse. He's not talking about the, the stars. He's talking about the descendants of David. At the end of the day, he's talking about Christ. But there's some science in it because he says the stars are countless. If he says the stars are countless, they're countless. Whether Hipparchus, 150 years before Christ, believed that or not, you know, your belief in a lie doesn't make the lie true. Y'all get that little principle? Because this was, and I'm not even going to say that Hipparchus was not lying on purpose. He was speaking of the science that he had the ability to understand at the time. He was looking at what he saw, and he counted 1,022. Of course, Ptolemy said, even that you were wrong by 34. The Black Plague hit Europe during the 4th century, excuse me, the 14th century. 25% of the people died. One out of every four person, people died. Nobody knew what to do. They couldn't control it. They had absolutely no concept of microbiology like we have today. You know what finally brought the plague to an end? The book of Leviticus. Nobody wants to read the book of Leviticus. I love the book of Leviticus. But that's what ended the plague. You know what was in Leviticus 14? It says, as long as they have the disease... And that passage was not speaking to the Black Plague. It was speaking to an illness that existed in Israel at the time that the book was written. But the principle is this. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. Unclean, sick, contagious is what unclean is. And it says they must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Europe learned the principle of quarantining from Leviticus 14. 36. So when it speaks to science, it is accurate. Number two, it's accurate in the details of history. There's a record of the, uh, uh, of, uh, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. And you have this, uh, this deal between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. And it says this. It says that he gave 30 talents of gold. Talent is a, um, a unit of measure. He gave 30 talents of gold and 300 talents of silver. And that didn't seem like a big deal until the archaeologists discovered the Assyrian records of that deal between those two guys. In fact, they discovered Sennacherib's own record, and in his record, he has 800 talents of silver. He has 30 of the gold, but he has 800 of the silver instead of 300 of the silver that is in the Scriptures. And the haters say, see, that's what I'm talking about. The Bible 
it messes up on the little details. It messes up on the numbers. The little numbers and the little details, it's jacked up. That's why I don't trust it. But then further archaeological studies revealed that the standard of calculating gold in, in, uh, it was the same in Judea and, and Syria, but, the, but the, the standard of calculating silver in the two were different. And they were so different that it took 800 Syrian silver talents to equal 300 Hebrew talents. And guess what? That's exactly what the Scripture says. The Scripture is speaking in the Hebrew, and the Sennacheribs is recorded in Syrian. Daniel chapter 5, there's a story about Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. He's a king, Belshazzar. And, the, and it says that he's the last, uh, the last king of Judea. Well, the scholars laughed, and they say, that's a joke. Somebody just made that stuff up because we have the Babylonian records that say he was not the last king of Babylon. The last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. Y'all say that with me together. Nabonidus. They say the last king was Nabonidus. Obviously, that's just a story that somebody made up. But until the spade of an archaeologist one day uncovers in Iraq, Babylon, uncovers a clay cylinder on, the, uh, on that cylinder was the name Belshazzar. Records were found inside that cylinder that showed that historians were, y'all track this with me, historians were right when they said that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. But they were wrong when they said that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. Well, how can that be? Nabonidus and Belshazzar were father and son. They ruled together. Nabonidus was a huge game hunter, gone for months and months and months at a time. Belshazzar was the king when Nabonidus was gone. They ruled together. And look, I could go on and on and on. Listen, when the Bible talks about science, when the Bible talks about history, when the Bible talks about mathematics, whatever it is that the Bible talks about, it's the Word of God. And God is infallible and His Word is infallible. So it is accurate when it talks about history. Number three, it's accurate when, uh, when it talks about prophecy. It's accurate in the details of prophecy. And there's huge amounts of prophetic fulfillment in the Scriptures. And we could study all kinds of different ones. And in your worship guide in the table talk, I got a whole bunch of stuff. Y'all got major homework this week. There's a bunch of stuff in there. But I want to just talk about a few that relate to the person and the nature of Christ. You think about the Scriptures, and you think about the prophecies that were fulfilled just in the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And skeptics are going to say this, I said it. 16 years ago I said it. Of course he fulfilled those prophecies because he rigged the game. He arranged it so that he would fulfill those prophecies. Well, okay, I'm going to set that off to the side for a second. You believe that. He arranged for these things. Well, let me tell you some of He arranged so that he could fulfill them. That's what haters are going to say. Well, let me tell you some of the things that he arranged for. Number one, he arranged for the place that he would be born. Now, I'm not sure how you can fix the place where you're going to be born. And then he managed somehow for Isaiah to record details, lots of details about his life 750 years before he was born, and you can read about those 
in uh, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 53. You know, did you arrange for the details of your life to be recorded 750 years before you were born? Then he arranged uh, to be crucified by execution on a cross. And do you know if you would read, and this is not in your worship guide, this is not in your homework, but you need to add it to your homework. Go read Psalm 22. It was written by David centuries before Jesus was born. And what you're going to read in Psalm 22 is a description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ written like a man who was standing at the foot of the cross. And it tells about the piercing of his hands. And it tells about the piercing of his feet. It it tells about the gambling for his garments. The very words that Jesus said upon that cross, David recorded 750 years earlier. And just understand this, that Jesus was not on that cross looking back and quoting David. David was looking ahead, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, looking ahead to Jesus 750 years later, looking ahead as a witness to that crucifixion. And it is an amazing thing that it is written, Psalm 22, as if somebody is a total eyewitness to the crucifixion. That one Psalm, Psalm 22, there's 33 distinct prophecies that are fulfilled at Calvary. And it was written a 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. And even more intriguing, y'all listen to this. When David wrote that prophecy, the form of capital punishment was stoning. It wasn't crucifixion. Crucifixion's a Roman form of capital punishment. The Romans were not even in power. They weren't going to be in power for 700 years. Y'all get that? And yet you find crucifixion described in Psalm 22 as if he was standing there looking at it. That's what being carried along by the Holy Spirit means. Did Jesus fix it so that he'd be crucified between two thieves? Did he he arrange so that a rich guy would give him his own tomb? The Bible prophesied all that in Isaiah 53, 9 through 12. The Bible prophesied that Judas was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver in the book of Zechariah. And you can study the Bible and it's going to predict things historically that are absolutely accurate. This week I want you to read um, Ezekiel 26 through 28. And that's prophecies of Tyre and Sidon. And and I've got in your your, uh, table talk in that worship guide kind of a long thing written about what happened to those two cities. And I want you to read it in Ezekiel and then read what that says. And I've stuck a few more in there as well. There's a dude named Peter Stoner and he took 11 of these prophecies with all of their detail, and he calculated the probability of that occurring by chance. And here's, here's the calculation. It's 1 in 5.76 times 10 to the 59th power. And if you would say, Ed, what does that mean? I would say, I don't have no kind of idea because my brain doesn't work in numbers that are that big. But I know this, fulfilled prophecy is a tremendous proof of the inspiration of the Scripture. Number four is that we know that it's inspired because of its unity. It's unified. It's one book, Genesis to Revelation, but it's 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Probably written over 1,600 or so years. 
in 13-ish different countries, in three different languages, in different styles of writing, in different, um, different genres of writing, different men, over 40 different authors, fishermen and kings and prophets and soldiers and laborers and all kind of different, different, way different education levels, way different education levels. You put all of that in a bucket and you get one unified story. The Bible has one theme, and it's redemption. It is not an exhaustive history of the world. It is a redemptive history whose purpose it is to lead lost sinners to salvation. Don't put that on the Bible. Don't put that on me, Ricky Bobby. That's, That's not what that Bible is for. So it has one theme, and that's redemption. It has one hero, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got one villain, and that's the devil, and it's got one purpose. And at the end of the day, it is for God's glory. So it is, it is a unified, miraculous book. It perseveres like no other book that's ever been written. There's no book that has had the opposition that that Bible has had. Men have laughed at it. Men have scorned it. Men have ridiculed it. They've made laws against it. There was a time in Scottish history when, when to own a Bible was a capital offense, they'd hang you in the public square. There are those that have vowed and declared that they're going to destroy this book. Antiochus Epiphany, Epiphanies of two or three hundred years before Christ went on a tirade to destroy the Jewish scriptures. They didn't die. The Roman ruler Diocletian in the late third century he tried to eradicate the Bible and Christianity. Neither died. There have been haters all throughout history. No one in Europe did as much to destroy the faith in the Word of God than Voltaire did in the 1700s. They took a Bible, they tied it to a donkey's tail, they drug it through the streets, they took it to the dump and burned it. And then Voltaire in 1776 said this, A hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Fifty years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society was using his house and his press to produce stacks of Bibles. Robert Ingersoll, an agnostic lawyer in the late 1800s, he said in 15 years, I'm going to have this book in the morgue. Fifteen years later, he was in the morgue, and at his estate sale, a preacher bought his desk and spent the rest of his life writing sermons on it. Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Y'all, get your friends to read this scripture. And if they're an unbeliever, if they're a hater, if this is true, you can stomp on it, you can tear it up, you can try to disprove it. That's what I did. I did it. But if it's true, it stands up to all of that scrutiny. Don't be scared. And I'm not saying you've got to know every answer. God knows every answer. Get your friends to read the Bible. Get them to read it. So you got all these haters, but the, but the book of Isaiah says that the text endures forever. Finally, think about this. The transforming, we can know that it's inspired because of the transforming power of that book, the transforming power of the Word. And, and that's a, for me, that's a fascinating reason that we can be certain that it's inspired. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
Does it say I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's a pretty good science book? That ain't what it says. Does it say I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I can trust the math in it? It's a math book. It's a history book. No. It says I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. That's the purpose of that book. Hebrews 4.12 says for the word of God is alive and it's active. There's life and there's energy in the Bible. It is incredible. That book totally led me personally to the foot of the cross where God reached down and plucked me out of the pit of hell and saved me. The book led me to that place. That book has led in my own personal life plenty of people, countless, not countless, numbers of people that I have led to the Lord with the book. And when they get to the foot of the cross, God saves them there. And their life is is transformed, not perfect. Don't put that on the book either. Don't put that on the Lord. When he saves us, nowhere in the text of the Bible does it say that get saved and life's going to be wonderful. It's not what it says. Get saved and you can handle, if you yoke yourself to him, you and he can handle, really, he can handle it all for you. So don't put that on the scripture either. Billy Graham, probably the greatest uh, human preacher that ever walked the planet. He started his ministry as a young man, and he would always say, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. In 1954, he went to, uh, to London to a place called the Herringay Arena to, to preach a revival to tens of thousands of people. And there was two men there, an atheist and an agnostic, sitting together. One of them was a doctor. They came there probably more to heckle than anything. An atheist and an agnostic. One of them was a doctor, and they're standing up there, and they're discussing um, Billy Graham. And they were finding fault with everything in him. But, but when he began to preach, and what did Billy Graham preach? For however many years he preached, he always preached the Bible. He didn't preach prosperity. He didn't say, get saved, and when you get home, there'll be a Mercedes in the driveway. That's a lie from hell. He didn't preach that. He preached the Bible. And that, that, and, and that Bible uh, began to take its toll. When he began to preach the Word of God, it began to take its toll on the people in that arena. And God says in the book of Jeremiah, He says, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? And that hammer began to fall, and conviction uh, began to fall on that arena in London. And the doctor that had been ridiculing and hammering um, um, Billy Graham, he said to the dude sitting next to him, he said, man, I don't know about you. Tears rolling down his face. I don't know about you, but, but I'm going down there to give my life to Christ. And the man sitting next to him said, yeah, man, me too. Here's your wallet. I'm a pickpocket. It's a true story. That book, this book, it is infallible. It is, it is inerrant. It is inspired by God. It is, it is His Word. It's not some man's Word. When it speaks to science, it's infallible and it's inerrant. When it speaks to history, it's infallible and it's inerrant. When it speaks to geography, it is infallible and it is inerrant. When it speaks to geography, mathematics, whatever it speaks to, it's infallible and it is inerrant. There is miraculous unity in it. It has withstood and continues to withstand the test of time. If you 
read it objectively. If you read it because you want to know the truth, you can only come away with, with one answer. The gospel never returns void. So I invite you to try to disprove it because I know that it's true and you're going to fail. That's what led me to the Lord. I'd never read a Bible in my life. I picked it up, read, started on page one. And guess what? God knows what He's doing. The book of Matthew, the perfect bridge between the Old and New Testament. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Way more prophetic fulfillment in the book of Matthew. I'm the geek that loves the genealogies. Well, guess what the book of Matthew starts with? With a genealogy. And the haters are going to say, yeah, but it's different than the genealogies in the other Gospels. Okay. It's not an exhaustive history of every generation from Adam to Christ. What does the genealogy in the book of Matthew prove? It proves that Matthew is a legal heir to the throne of Israel. Why is that important? Because it was written to a Jewish audience. And Jews knew the Messiah was going to come through David's line. He needed to, and me, I needed to know that Jesus had a right. And the book of Matthew says he has a right to the throne of Israel. Do y'all understand that he is the king? He is the king. It's not an exhaustive history of the world. It's a redemptive history to lead lost sinners into a saving relationship. This book, it says it in so many ways, and it says it in so many places, what Acts 20.21 says. The gospel is simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe what? Believe that he died on a cross 3,000, 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross and he was resurrected three days later. Why? To pluck me from the pit of hell. He loved me in the middle of my unlovableness. And so you believe that and you, and you repent. And he made life eternal with him available. And I'm, if y'all, if you have never done that, if you have never said yes to that offer, I'm begging you to do that today. Believe, but you have to believe and you have to repent. So I'm begging you to do that today. And if y'all would, close your eyes if you would and bow your heads with me. And if you made that decision today, if you said yes to that offer and that offer is there, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And you can pray it out loud and you can scream it from the mountaintops. You can say it to yourself. Sitting down, kneeling down, up here at your seat, it don't matter. Um, if you made that decision today, I want you to pray this with me. Lord, Today is the day that I am going to repent and I'm going to turn from my sin. And I know that I'm not perfect and I know, Lord, that I'm, I'm probably going to sin again. But I'm repenting of that. And I believe that you died on that cross. And I believe and I trust and I have faith that you were resurrected. Y'all, if the resurrection was real, that's a game changer. And today, I, if you say, today I believe that the resurrection was real, then today is the day that you went from lost to found. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the deal. If that happened, there's three things that I sort of want you to do. And if you don't do them, guess what? You're still saved. All right? There was three things. I want you to let us know that happened on that connection card that you got in that seat in front of you. Check that little box that says, 
I got saved. Stephen and them sang that song at the beginning today. Today I got saved, number one. Number two, I want you to check the box. I think it's underneath it that says you want to get baptized. You want to take the God plunge. I want to hold you under. You may need to be held a little longer under, but I want to hold you under a little bit. So I want you to do that. September the 16th is the next one. Um, and number three, I want you to sign up either on our website or out here at the Connections desk for the Steps class because here's what we want to we want to walk that sort of journey with you. We want to, we want to, because it's a big deal. If you go from lost to found, it is a big deal. Like you're on a mountaintop, and we want to walk along that journey um, with you. So if you would just let us, let us know that. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, we love you today. We thank you so much for your salvation. Lord, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not. Because it is your power for salvation. And Lord, I hope and I pray today that all of us are just a little better equipped to give a defense for the hope that we have. And that is a major thing that separates a believer from an unbeliever. Going from hopeless to hopeful. Because you know what? The last part of this book says that we win. We know that we win. And so therefore we can have hope. And so Lord, I lift our church up to you that we would be an army of people that would walk out that door and give a defense for your word. And so Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.